Uh, tonight, I get, I've got a handout here, which is basically the chronology or the chronological order of the books of the New Testament. And the reason I wanted to, to look at this tonight was because I, it's my personal conviction um, that at least, if not, if not the epistles of John, then I believe through the book of Revelation, the New Testament was written prior to 70 A.D. And so I've got two charts here that I gave you, and I, I didn't put them front and back page because I, I thought you might want to just be able to look at the difference in the order. So on page 98 or 96, this is just a chart that comes from BibleStudyTools.com. It's a, it's a website that you can access and has great Bible study tools. And this was the, the list of the New Testament books in, chronolo in chronological order uh, from BibleStudyTools.com. You'll notice um, the Apocalypse, which is also the revelation of, of uh, the book of what we call the book of Revelation. The, the title is actually the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so here it's listed as the Apocalypse. Don't think that's some weird book. It's not. Um, and they list that. At, at around 68 AD, and I would, I would agree with that date because a glaring omission from the book of Revelation is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the book of Revelation is written as though the temple is still standing, and I believe it was still standing when it was written. And I believe that book was foretelling of the destruction that would come to that city and ultimately that temple. <clears throat> but that's a different Bible study. We've already done that Bible study. Uh, maybe we'll do it again. Um, the other uh, list I gave you is from uh, a Bible scholar by the name of John Robinson, J-A-T, John Arthur something Robinson. He's a British scholar. Uh, he's often cited by preterists. Uh, it's not that he was a preterist per se, um, but he, had a, he wrote a book called Redating the New Testament. He believed that the dating of the New Testament books was very sloppily and arbitrarily done. And actually, there are a number of Bible scholars who agreed with him. Not that they necessarily changed their dating, but they did acknowledge that there really is not a lot of evidence to support late dates for these books. Um, and if you look... You can get lost in looking at New Testament chronologies, and I suggest that you do not do that uh, because you have liberal theologians. And actually, I haven't done a lot of research on Mr. Robinson, but he, he is considered a liberal theologian. And um, one of the reasons he was considered a liberal theologian was because of his belief, uh, his position on the dates of the New Testament books. Um, I happen to agree with, with him, and uh, actually, when you look at this, um, when you look at this other list, uh, 
It's not that a lot of these dates are far off. And the reality is we don't know the specific dates that these books were written. But I wanted to do this because as we're going through the, the, the timeline of history, we would be really, um, it would be really sad if we didn't look at the timeline in which our New Testament was written because in the very years that we've been looking at recently on the timeline, this is when the New Testament was written. So let's just, um, I don't know if you can do it. You can maybe uh, put those, those sheets side by side, even though I did staple them together for you. Uh, but you'll notice on both of these lists, uh, the book of James is, is listed first. Of course, James is the book that we're going through on Sunday morning. Um, I think you'll see the list on BibleStudyTools.com has 50 A.D. Um, Mr. Robinson dates it uh, circa, and my history students, what does circa mean? Around. Around. About. So when you see that little C dot and a date, it means about. About 47 to 48 A.D. Or... You might just round that off and say it was written around 50 A.D. And you wouldn't be you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, the next book that was written is First Thessalonians. Written by Paul, and that was written uh, in the early 50s, which would correspond with uh, the chart from BibleStudyTools.com. Now, the reason I use that is because that's a generally accepted platform to study the Bible, and it typically has what, what would be perhaps the latest information in terms of archaeology. You know, if there's some breakthrough and they find something that proves the Gospel of Mark was written in 40 A.D., you know, then that, that's going to be reflected as they are able to substantiate those, those things. So you can kind of go through there and see. I'm not going to go book by book. Um, but as you look at those lists, is there anything there that uh, causes you to have a question or any, anything there that you might see? Uh, these, these are not real far off, and the order is very, very similar. Um, now, he gives a much earlier date, for, for instance, for um, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon. He puts them around 58, where the others put them in the early 60s. Not, not a big deal, not a big difference. Um, Mr. Robinson, his, his main thing in believing that we need to redate the the letters and the, the writings of the New Testament was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He believed that many Bible scholars did not consider that um, important historical event in terms of the writing of the New Testament. And he felt like that you really could not, um, you could not discount that event. You had to consider that event and consider the, the internal evidence in some of these writings that would then inform us as to the dates. 
All right, any questions about any of this? Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds reasonable to me. It's why I I actually believe the canon of scripture was closed prior to 70 A.D. Um, and, and, you know, even BibleStudy.com, they list Revelation in 68. I think they do that because of the internal um, witness of the book. It doesn't mention, uh, and it's obvious the revelation of Jesus Christ is about the two Jerusalems, the two temples, uh, the two brides. And so uh, proclaiming, affirming another witness of what Jesus prophesied written in the Gospels of the destruction that would come to that city and that temple, ultimately. Um, yeah, they give then later dates because uh, it, a, lot of, a lot of scholars give later dates to all of John's writings, including, interestingly enough, including, well, here, even BibleStudy.com has the Gospel of John in 85 written much, much later. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good... Now, um, Robinson basically puts all of John's writings somewhere between 40 and 65. Except for Revelation, he says late late 68 or before 70. Any, anything else? So he also includes some other writings. Um, uh, the Didache, for instance, the Didache was not... Who's familiar with the Didache? So the Didache, uh, you can you can go online and it's a and get it in PDF form. It's it's um, public domain. The Didache was an early writing. Uh, BibleStudy.com doesn't list this. Um, Robinson lists not just the the books of the New Testament, the canon, but he lists these other writings that were actually used by the early church. Not that they were considered inspired. But we do know that the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermes in uh, some of these other writings were circulated in the churches. Um, now, we just studied this in my history class. And um, let's see, I have none of my, none of my fifth grade history students are in here right now. But we just studied this because we, we just looked at the um, Jerome in the writing of the Latin Vulgate and, and the writing of the Bible, how the Bible, how we came to possess the Bible. 
And, and one of the sayings that we talked about in our history class, I don't know if my two former history students will remember this or not, um, but the Bible was not, uh, the Bible was not, um, it was written by men, but it wasn't, it wasn't, how, how is it? Uh, the Bible was not, I can't remember what I just taught my students. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, the Bible was not, um, I don't think this is the right word, but I'll use this word. The Bible wasn't directed by men. So men didn't direct what would be, or the canon of scripture wasn't directed by men. It was discovered by men. So when they put the canon of scripture they didn't just pick books out of the air and decide these are the ones we want in and these books are going to be out. When they finalized the, the canon of scripture in the third century, they did it because these were the books that the church had already identified, had already codified. Um, one of the ways that we can know what books were part of the canon, they were bound, they were copied and bound and codified in codices. A lot of these other books were not codified with the scriptures. They were in scroll form, they were in different forms, but by the time they settled on and they said, this is the canon of scripture, this is what we need to encourage the churches now throughout the world to be studying it's because those were the scriptures that were already being used. And the church in the third century just made a formal declaration that, yes, we affirm what we have already discovered to be the inspired word of God, the scriptures. These are the books. And, and of course, it was a very long and arduous process. And they, they went through and, and they were very meticulous as to why they didn't just say, well, this is what everybody's using, so this is what we're going to do. They went through and they, there were reasons why. There were things, if you read the Didache, and I would actually encourage you to read it. You can read the Didache and it doesn't take, I mean, it doesn't take 30 seconds of reading the Didache to realize this is not inspired. Because it's not consistent with the doctrines of grace. It's not consistent with the gospel as presented in the inspired word of God. It doesn't mean the Didache gives you bad information. It, it, it has a lot about holiness and morality and those types of things. But you don't have to, you can just read it and, and, and see the difference between reading something like the Didache Versus Paul's letter to the epistle, to the Ephesians. Yeah, that's another great way. Yes. Yeah. And, and the same with the shepherds, uh, the shepherd of Hermes and, and these other writings. You can just tell the difference. Um, you know, uh, there are a number of different books or letters, you know, you, the book of Enoch, there are people, a lot of people are fascinated with that. 
But when you read the book of Enoch, you don't, I mean, it's like, this is not inspired scripture. This is not. It is not. Uh, Jude quotes the writings of Enoch, but the thing is, we don't know if what we even have that we call the book of Enoch today, we don't know if that's how close that is to what Jude quoted because it's not inspired. Um, And we have the evidence from the scripture, the thousands of manuscripts, over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts alone. And when you compare those across time, across geography, across the different methods of copying and codifying, the consistency is, there is no inconsistency there. And the only way you could get that through humanity copying is is that God divinely inspired him to do this. All right, anything else from these lists of chronology? So if we think about, let's just look at the book of Revelation here. Let's just say, based on both of our lists here, uh, they put Revelation being written somewhere around 68 A.D., Written by John. Now, what's happening in 68 A.D.? What's happening in history in 68 A.D.? What's happening in Jewish history? The war has started. So the siege of Jerusalem hasn't started, but the war started in 66. And, and, and now, by 68... People are fleeing to Jerusalem and the war is in full effect and the Romans are marching across Judea. They're nations uh, rising against nations, armies. Remember the signs, a lot of the signs we talked about, the comets, the signs in the heavens, the supernatural signs. Those were happening at this time. So as John is writing this, um, and John would not be unaware of what was happening with the churches back in, um, in his homeland, even though he's imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Yes. That's a great question. I don't know, but I'll find that out. Because he was released. Um, Any other questions? So if you think about an earlier date versus the the conventional date that you see from a lot of scholars is 95 A.D. That the Revelation was written in 95 A.D. And the reason 95 A.D. is listed is because Arrhenius... I think it's him uh, who makes a, um, a comment in one of his writings. It's the only place that date is given. Uh, and I believe it's him uh, who also uh, made the comment that Jesus was 50 years old. Um, so based on that one piece of external evidence, most scholars say the book of Revelation was written in 95 A.D., 
There is no other evidence externally that would give us that date. But if you look at the internal evidence, it's really hard to believe that Revelation was written 25 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. I will, might add this. Um, a lot of those who also hold to that late date of Revelation are also... Um, dispensational in their eschatology. And that late date fits much better with dispensational premillennial eschatology than an early date does. Because if you go with an early date, then you have to interpret some of the things taking place in Revelation differently than you would if you were premillennial and dispensational in your eschatology. So the late date lends itself to that eschatology. The early date lends itself to a post-mill or a preterist or partial preterist eschatology. But I believe the revelation itself also does that. Makes much more sense if you believe this generation, the generation Jesus was speaking to was the generation that would not pass away till all these things were fulfilled. All right, any, any other questions from this, these two lists? <clears throat> all right. So um, that brings us to our next stop on our next date. So the destruction of Jerusalem happened in 73... I mean, in 70 A.D., but with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the rebellion, the war did not end. So Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed, but there were still Jews. There were still rebels who were opposing the Romans. Now, remember, um, leading up to the siege... There were Jewish armies, remember Josephus, who became the historian for Titus in Vespasian, who was outside pleading with the Jews inside Jerusalem to surrender to the Romans so that they wouldn't all be slaughtered. Um, Josephus started out a general leading Jewish troops fighting the Romans. And, and of course, he was defeated and captured, which is how he came to be with Vespasian and Titus. So um, those forces that, that were fighting in the land of Israel ultimately were driven into the city of Jerusalem. Then the siege took place, but not all of them went into the city of Jerusalem. So who was, what was the name of the community and the religious sect of Jews that lived near the Dead Sea. Anybody know? Any of my students know? Huh? Qumran was the community. Who were the, what were the people called who lived there? Qumranians. Is that right? Gosh. They were the Essenes. The Essenes, uh, and the Essenes are the people that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, 
And so um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are fascinating in and of themselves. Discovered, the first scrolls were discovered in 1948. So if you think about it, um, if you just think about 48 AD, um, for 1900 years or longer, because many of those scrolls were written and dated to like um, one or two centuries BC. So those Essenes collected writings and kept them there and they also copied the scriptures and they made meticulous records of daily life and all kinds of things. So for 1900 years, 2000 years, those scrolls sat undisturbed in these caves along the Dead Sea. Now, with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, not everybody was in Jerusalem. There were a lot of Jews living in the caves along the Dead Sea. Now, when you think about these caves, you might be thinking, you know, let's take a hike and walk through some of these caves. It's not quite that easy. These caves were, were caves that existed in the cliffs above the Dead Sea. Who knows what the depth of the Dead Sea is? It's, thir it's over 1,300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest place on earth. Uh, and so these caves are like hundreds, thousand plus feet above the Dead Sea. And so along these cliffs on the, on the western side of the Dead Sea, you've got this system of caves and the Essenes lived in these caves. They lived, uh, of course, they believed that they should live hard, simple lives. So they didn't, they didn't believe in luxury. They didn't believe in creature comforts and pleasing the flesh. They believed you should live a hard life, a simple life, and, and life should be Hard, so they lived in a very hard place, um, and and uh, so when the rebellion started and the war started, a lot of Jews fled to this area of the Dead Sea. If you follow, it was in the news a few weeks ago. A team of archaeologists just discovered a cache of Roman weapons, Roman swords. They had been hid in this cave and they'd been there since the rebellion, since the years prior or just following 70 AD. And, uh, and they found in this cave not just Roman weapons and all kinds of things. They found the people in that cave who starved to death or died of, of thirst. They, they died in that cave because they had nowhere else to go and they stayed in those caves until they literally starved to death or, or the Romans came and found them. Possible the Romans, I don't know. These, I think in this article it said that these people had, I don't think there was any evidence that they had been killed. Do you remember, Dave? No, I think they just starved to death, but they found the skeletal remains of people in that cave along with this cache of weapons that they said were like in pristine condition. I mean, they were very dusty, but no rust, no, I mean, 
you could pull that sword out and you could use it to kill someone with. Um, and so they were saying there are so many of these caves and it's so treacherous to get to. Most of these caves have not even been explored because it's just very difficult to get to. And so they don't know how much other stuff is there, how many other scrolls might be there. But they're constantly, uh, you know, now um, digging or doing archaeological um, excavations in, in these areas. Well, this area was an area where the Jews held out against the Romans. And they would, um, they would just be like gorillas and they would, they would just fight the Romans. Uh, there was no hope of them overthrowing the Romans, but their goal was to not get caught and to somehow survive because their belief was what? Who are they waiting for? They're waiting for their Messiah. Now, with the destruction of Jerusalem, there were a couple of guys who they thought might actually be their Messiah, but they weren't. And we know they weren't because we know who their Messiah is. And so the goal was to hold out until the Messiah came and overthrew the Romans. Where was another place the Jews held out? Where? Masada. So has anyone ever been to Masada? I haven't either. I would really like to go. Uh, I haven't been, but I got a picture of Masada right here. If, if I had a if we had a way to project things in here, I could project a really nice picture of Masada. So Masada uh, is a, is a, was a Jewish fortress, uh, a Jewish stronghold that was built uh, in, the, in the century before the birth of Christ. Uh, I think it was built somewhere between 150 and 100 B.C. Then Herod the Great greatly expanded and fortified Masada because Herod the Great was a super paranoid guy. And so he chose Masada to be this fortress that would be his place that he could go to and be completely safe because no one could overthrow Masada. And so uh, during the during the Jewish wars, during the revolt against Rome, while most Jews went to Jerusalem, there was a group of rebels called the Sicarii. Do you know what Sicarii, or do you remember we talked about this? You know what Sicarii means? They were the dagger men. Sicarii was a dagger. So they were called the Sicarii or the dagger men. Um, and these were the zealots uh, who opposed Rome and, and wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans. Uh, Jesus had a zealot who was one of his disciples. And he stopped being a dagger man and he became a follower of Christ. Well, these Sicarii, uh, these dagger men, uh, they were the ones that defeated the Romans. They actually went to Masada and took over Masada. Uh, before they took it over, they overthrew the Romans there um, and they got the weapons to, to try to help arm the resistance. And when it became apparent that, that they had lost and Jerusalem fell, 
these guys were already in Masada. They decided we're not going to Jerusalem, we're going to Masada because we'll have a much better chance of holding out at Masada than we will at Jerusalem. And they were right. And so in 70 AD, when Jerusalem fell, you had almost a thousand people still at Masada living there. <clears throat> now Masada, Herod had made this place really almost invincible. Uh, he, he carved huge underground cisterns out of solid rock that could hold. So whenever it rained, these cisterns would fill up with water and there would be a water supply that could last for years there at Masada. Uh, and so they could bring in food uh, that could last for years. They'd never have to leave. It, that's what it was designed for. That's what Herod, when he re, when he, when he um, <clears throat> fortified it and when he expanded it, he planned for long periods of time to be able to live there without ever having to leave. And that's why these Jews went there. So in 73 AD, three years after the fall of Jerusalem, the Jews knew, I mean, the Romans knew that these Jews were in Masada, but they just left them there because they weren't a threat to them. And so they cleaned up everything else, took care of everything else. And then three years after the fall of Jerusalem, um, it was ordered that these Jews be taken out of Masada because this last holdout of the um, resistance had to be dealt with. Rome could not leave any of the resistance in place. And so the Romans go to Masada and they discover uh, that this place is not going to be easy to take. So there were two ways to get into Masada. There was, um, there, they were basically two trails. And that's basically what they were. There was not like a road where you could just like drive wagons full of materials. It was a very narrow way. So you, you couldn't have like large masses of soldier. It, it was just very narrow trail, two trails. One of them was treacherous and one of them was a little bit easier that the trail they got their supplies up. But both of these trails were extremely easy to defend. So an army trying to march up this trail would be very easily defeated, which is what happened. And so the Romans, now, if you look at this picture of Masada, I would encourage you to do it. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, and what's even more fascinating, if you look at Masada, if you stand on top of Masada and you look down and you see the Dead Sea, I mean, you are like way up. You're way up, uh, very high. <clears throat> and so the Romans down at the, at the bottom of this plateau, the Romans built their camp and you can still see. So you can you can look at images on the Internet and you can see the outline of the Roman camps that were still there. Um, most impressive. So what Rome did is Rome brought in their legions. I think they had about 20,000. They had two legions there. They had about 20,000 troops and they had thousands and thousands of slaves. 
And guess who many of these slaves were? They were the Jews that had been defeated. And they bring these slaves and they bring their legions and they realize we, we're never going to take this fortress over unless we build a ramp that we can march our army up. And so the Romans literally built a dirt ramp. Now, that dirt ramp is still, it's in that picture. They built a dirt ramp 2,000 feet long. Now, they didn't have excavators. They didn't have giant dump trucks and giant front-end loaders driving up there dumping yards and tons of sand. They had slaves carrying buckets at a time. And they might have been big buckets, but how big could a bucket be that two or four or one man could carry? And in, I think it took them, I think it was less than four months they, it might have been a couple of months, let's just say between two and four months, they built this ramp that led to the top of Masada. And then they built, they built, um, they built the ramp and then they had these, these war machines that were built out of timbers. And from these war machines, they had battering rams and they built a ramp up to the walls of Masada, and then they built these gigantic battering rams, and they would just ram the walls. And these walls were massive, and it, it, it took quite a lot for them to finally break through these walls. And so when they finally got, you know, they're building the ramp and the Jews are shooting at them and throwing rocks at them and doing all kinds of things, but the Romans are undeterred. And so in less than four months, the Romans build this ramp, dirt ramp, and now they're building these siege engines, these battering ramps and these things that they're going to they're gonna get their soldiers on top of and, and start shooting back uh, while they're battering this wall. And uh, the, Ro the, uh, the Romans, I mean, the Jews were successful in getting a fire built under one of these uh, war engines and it burned and it collapsed. Um, and so the Jews felt fortunate that the first attempt to breach the wall failed. But the Jews, with the collapse as this giant war engine is burning and crumbling, the, the Romans let the Jews know, it's okay, we'll be back. You can't go anywhere and we'll be back. And so the Jews retreated with the intention of the next morning, they're going to start this again and they're going to march up that ramp and they're going to they're push their thing up there and they're going to start battering this thing again because that wasn't the only war machine they had. You know, it's like any good army. You, you, you bring in all your stuff and, and you plan for those types of things in a war. And so the Jews in Masada knew that the Romans would be back tomorrow and they knew by this time, seeing this gigantic dirt ramp, that there was no way that they could hold out against the Romans. So the next day, how many of you know the story of Masada? So the next day, 
The Romans march up, break through the wall. They storm into Masada and they think it's strange because there is no opposition. And when they get inside Masada, they find everyone dead. And what the Jews had done the night before, they knew that the Romans would come and they would be successful in breaching the walls. And those 960 Jews inside Masada decided they would rather die than be slaves to the Romans or killed and tortured by the Romans because they knew the Romans would not give them a pleasant death um, if, if they allowed them to die at all. The ones that they, that they would kill would not be killed pleasantly and the rest would be taken as slaves. And so these 960 Jews died by suicide. And the, the men drew lots the night before and uh, the guy who got the long straw, short straw, whatever it was, was the guy who would be left alive to kill the ones that remained. Um, so we know exactly what happened in Masada because there were, I think, two women and three children who had hid in one of the caverns and they were not, they weren't part of the mass of Jews that died that night. They hid and survived and the Romans uh, took them alive and they told the story of what happened in Masada. And so those 960 Jews died in Masada by their own hand in, in, instead of allowing themselves to be taken by the Romans. So... Um, pretty fascinating. There's neat little videos you can watch online that give you a virtual tour of Masada and tell you the history of it. Uh, it is, for all practical purposes, exactly like it was when it was taken by the Romans in 73 AD. Uh, it's just like it was when Herod would have stayed there. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very impressive place. Um, it is where the Israeli army Trains and they take their men and uh, they make the they make a, a pact there at Masada that they will never be never again. Uh, they won't be defeated. They won't surrender. Um, they'll fight to the death, uh, but they will not. Just like the people at Masada, they will not allow themselves to be taken by their enemies. Uh, that's still the attitude in Israel today. It'd be a lot better if they would just go ahead and accept Jesus as their Messiah. Um, all right, any questions? So that brings us to 73 AD. Masada fell in 73 AD. And the fall of Masada marked the end of the first Jewish revolt. You know why it's called the first Jewish revolt? Because there was a second Jewish revolt. But we got about 50 years, um, we got about 60 years before we study that. Well, not 60 years in our time, but 60 years on the timeline. All right, any, any other, uh, any questions about anything, Masada, Canon? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think there's other places. So I don't, I don't think Jesus would have been referring to Masada. Um, but, you know, you have, you have the Judean hill country, uh, which on, on, the, on the western side, I mean on the eastern side uh, of the Jordan. So all of that Judean hill country. Um, and this is where those, those caves, so uh, the... Masada, as well as those caves on the Dead Sea, are, were on the western side of the Dead Sea, uh, or on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So we do know that many Christians fled to what we call Petra today in, in, in present-day Jordan. It's where those where they have carved an entire city out of rock. It was a place of worship. Many Christians fled there, and that's where they, they went to escape the Romans. Yes? How did the Romans know that the Jews went to Masada? Well, Masada was there. The Romans knew it was a fortress, and they knew the Jews were there. I mean, it wasn't hard to know that they were there. The word got out. And so the Romans just let them alone. They let them stay there until they were ready to deal with them. But they knew they were there. They knew they had been there. Those, those Jews in Masada did not, once they got to Masada and they uh, fortified themselves there, they did not come out and fight the Romans. So those Jews in Masada were not coming out and fighting the Romans. So they were not a threat to the Romans militarily. They were a threat to the Romans uh, just simply because they had not been conquered yet. But for three years plus, probably for closer to five years, the Jews in Masada lived in peace and uh, didn't have to worry about the Romans, but it was a short-lived peace. Um, and so they weren't a threat. They weren't actively fighting the Romans at that point. They were a passive resistance. Any other questions? Do we know um, how many Jews about during the destruction of Jerusalem in the war were taken as slaves? Yeah, so Josephus records in his numbers 1.1 million Jews were killed in, in the siege. Uh, because remember, the siege started at Passover. So Jews from all over the world... According to the law, let every male appear before me in the place that my name shall dwell forever, which was Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. So at Passover in 70 A.D., even though there's a war going on and a revolt, Jews from all over the world assembled in Jerusalem for the Passover. And it was, that's when the siege took place, when all these Jews were held up in the city. It's one of the reasons that they began to starve because there were so many extra people there. So if you read Josephus, Josephus talks about how they, they ate their shoe leather because they didn't have anything else to eat. They resorted to cannibalism because there was nothing le left to eat. Yes. Is that part of the 1.1 million when they started resorting to cannibalism? Yeah, I would say so, yes, because those things happened during the siege. So during the siege, it wasn't just the Romans. In fact, I would say probably 
uh, as many, if not, there were more people died either at the hands of Jews. The Jew, there was a civil war taking place inside the city among the Jews. But then there was also famine and sickness and disease. Uh, all of that contributed to the fall of Jerusalem. They broke through the wall, but um, conditions were so horrible inside. Um, so 1.1 million died. There were 97,000 Jews taken uh, as slaves um, by the Romans. So 97,000. So I don't know that. Um, I, I know more than likely. Um, so a lot of those slaves were also taken to be gladiators. So typically what the Romans did is they took, I mean, they, they took what they needed, if, what, whatever they would have needed to use for the war effort. But with 97,000 people, you had uh, a good selection. So they would also typically take those men, those warriors. So for instance, the two Jewish leaders, they didn't kill them on purpose. They took them to Rome as slaves. They paraded them in a, in a triumph. Um, so when Paul writes in Colossians that Jesus triumphed over his enemies, making an open show of them, that word triumph is the word used to describe the parade the Romans would have to honor their legions that defeated whatever nation, whatever army, whatever enemy. So when the Jewish war was over, they took Jews that would have been paraded through the streets of Rome. And so they took those leaders. And then after that parade, they killed one of them and then imprisoned another for life. So they would have taken slaves that would have shown the type of of soldiers that they defeated. So they didn't take the weak, they took the strong. So it would be seen, we're stronger than these guys. And then a lot of those guys who were soldiers then were put into the, as slaves to, to go in as gladiators for entertainment, yes. Uh, one comment, so you said 97,000 were taken. As slaves, yes. Died. That's about one tenth. Which, if I recall my minor prophets, that's what the Lord said that one out of every ten would be left mm. as a remnant. And there's pestilence, the sword, mm -hmm. famine that would come upon them, and ten percent of them would be left mm -hmm. as a remnant of all of those plagues. Right. Yeah. And who knows how many of those ninety-seven that became slaves? How many of them might have? later converted to Christianity. Right. And I don't know, no one knows how many Christians left. That's a number that, that we don't know sure. what that number is because they would not have left in mass. Um, so if you remember, as we've gone through this timeline, the, the revolt proper started in 66 AD. But remember the conditions of of the, of the nation leading up to the revolt, it was the horrible conditions that led the Jews to finally say, we have nothing to lose, and they just went all out war against the Romans. Well, all of those things leading up to that, the Christians would have heeded the words of Jesus and they would have begun filtering out. Well, besides that, even, 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Within within a decade of of uh, Pentecost, uh, the persecution began. Uh, that persecution subsided. So there was a point in time where the persecution subsided, but that initial persecution that began with the stoning of Stephen is what caused the church to be propelled out. Um, and so you see this pattern. Um, you see this pattern. It, it, that is in, in, like an exodus. Um, it's like a reverse exodus. You know, like Pentecost was a reverse Babel. That dispersion was like a reverse exodus, if you will. Because they were not obeying the command of Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And part of the reason uh, was because they couldn't get over their, their partiality against the Gentiles. And so God helped them get over all of that. All right, what else? Okay. Yeah. 73. I love that. <laughs> exactly. This generation will not pass till all these things. 40. Yeah. So if you if you think about if you think about um, if we accept and, and we there's no reason for us not to 33 AD as the date of the crucifixion of Jesus and uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the New Testament church. Um, Masada in 73 AD would mark 40 years when that revolt would be over, officially over. 70 AD marked the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So within a generation, the words of Jesus were fulfilled to the letter. 